Welcome to the ninth episode of the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Sexual violence as a weapon of war. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking to Patricia Sellers and discussing her all-inspiring career, starting as a public defender in Philadelphia, serving defendants who came from the black, Latino and low-income communities in the city, moving to Brazil, where she worked with the Afro-Brazilian community, overseeing support to feminist projects, to the ICTY in 1994, where she was assigned to developing legal strategies to address sexual violence and conflict. She is the Special Advisor for Gender for the Office of the Prosecutor at the International Criminal Court. She is a visiting fellow at Kellogg College of the University of Oxford, where she teaches international criminal law and human rights law. She has previously served as the Legal Advisor for Gender, Acting Head of the Legal Advisory Section, and as a prosecutor at the ICTY from 94 to 2007. As a father of two strong-willed daughters looking for a role model, Patty Sellers is that role model. She is a rock star of international justice, and I don't say that lightly. Over the next 60 minutes, you're going to hear why. Patty, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to join us on the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Uh, I can't actually believe how long it's been since uh, since you were last in my house for for the anniversary. Yes, a couple of years now. Yes, so so yeah, we just celebrated our fourth anniversary. Well, congratulations! That's fabulous. Thank you, Patty. I wanted to start by asking you. Um, the importance of focusing on gender, crime, and conflict has developed over time. Um, how did you come to first get involved in this kind of work? Well, I was uh, a public defender in Philadelphia many years ago. And then after doing criminal law litigation at the defender's office, I moved to Brazil where I was doing human rights work with the Ford Foundation. And at that period in time, Brazil was coming out of the dictatorship. And there were several issues of this kind of bunch, um, how can I say, this broadening Brazilian feminism that dealt with Afro-Brazilian women and uh, European-descendant Brazilian women. And a lot of the issues revolved around domestic violence and to a certain extent, sexual violence. But when I came to the Yugoslav Tribunal in the mid-90s, because of my background, uh, the prosecutor, Richard Goldstone, and the deputy prosecutor, Graham Blewett, asked me to look at what would become the gender portfolio, which was going to deal with the sexual violence. And there was quite a, a constituency at that time period, uh, mainly uh, feminists who were very interested in human rights from a feminist point of view, but had come from national jurisdictions where issues of sexual violence, and particularly rape, we're moving to the forefront, I would say, of the women's agenda and the human rights agenda. And if you remember at that time period, the United Nations was holding a series of women's conferences every 10 years. There had been one in Mexico City, there had been one in uh, Copenhagen, and probably the most famous one was in uh, Beijing, where issues of sexual violence and domestic spheres and then issues of recognizing the pervasiveness of sexual violence during armed conflict uh, was coming to um, a level of discussion that had not been held within humanitarian law circles or international criminal law circles uh, prior to this and, and just entering into human rights circles. So I kind of came through that passageway with, you know, specific, uh, specifically being asked by the prosecutor and deputy prosecutor but it's because they knew of my background in Brazil and within the United States. And at the time, um, so through through the prosecutor uh, Richard Goldston, I mean, was there a was there a particular uh, drive to focus on sexual violence coming out of the Yugoslav conflict? 
Well, I think that one could certainly say that that was there was a drive, but I think it's better to uh, place it in the context that uh, uh, Richard Goldstone, Justice Goldstone, thought that this was part of our mandate, um, and it was not necessarily something that we were doing to be politically correct, but we were doing that to be competent. And I think he recognized that the constituency of, uh, in particular, feminists who were concerned about questions of sexual violence was part of a, of a larger constituency uh, because there had been so many reports. Remember, this is the beginning of these uh, 24-hour news broadcast of CNN and that there had been a very well-known uh, uh, Warburton Commission report coming out of the uh, European Union concerning violence that included the sexual violence and that Sharif Basuni had done the expert commission, uh, nine volumes. And one of the volumes of the expert commission that he had set forward uh, was replete with sexual violence uh, against women, also against men, sexual violence in detention centers, sexual violence in the takeover of towns. So I think um, Richard and Deputy Prosecutor Graham Blewett uh, were really what we call now contextualizing this sexual violence was definitely within our mandate. And the question was, how could we investigate it? And then how could we make our legal submissions, therefore, to present it before the judges so that it could be prosecuted? And certainly, I, mean, I came into the the Bosnian um, side of things, so the Bosnian war crimes chamber, um, many years later, 2004 onwards. And so a lot of our work was um, already dictated by by some of the great work that had already been done um, during your time at the ICTY. Um, but being at the forefront of advancing investigations in this field, but also legal argument for the interpretation of sexual violence. Um, I mean, what would you what what would you say made that so important in in the context of the Yugoslav conflict, for example? Well, I think what made it stand out in the Yugoslav context was the the following. There had been, in some ways, uh, rumors of, of rape camps. There had been uh, rumors of, you know, numbers of, uh, and particularly females who had been raped. And I think that phrases such as uh, rape is a weapon of war, uh, this kind of the forced in pregnancy, that was taking on a, a, a life of its own. And it was certainly, uh, I think, it it came from this realization that we were not at a time period where you just shrugged and say, well, you know, what do you expect? It's armed conflict. Rapes are going to happen. Uh, it was a time period when the international community, you know, set forward by the Security Council. And you look in the Secretary General's report, a statute, where not only does it give heedance that sexual violence occurred? It certainly occurred within a nexus to this armed conflict. And I think that that became among the reasons that, first of all, that it was taken seriously at the office of the prosecutor uh, in terms of, as I said before, our, our mandate. But I think also, I think that the world community slowly goes through this watershed moment of taking sexual violence during armed conflict as part of the armed conflict and not part of the behavior or one or two, you know, errant or bad soldiers within a, a contingent. And I think that the reality on the ground is that in Bosnia, you had women's groups that were already looking not only at these issues, but at the women and girls who had come through and who had survived some of the sexual violence. And they had information about those who had not survived the sexual violence. So I think we would have been in a, um, a stance of complete and total denial if the armed conflict in the former Yugoslavia had been treated as if it were only about the killing killings between men on the on the battlefield. That was not the factual basis. I want to come back to the rape as a weapon of war in a moment, but the other remark that you made that up until that point, there, there was this sense of, well, it's a war, what can you do? Was that a sentiment that you, that you had experienced? Well, I think that it was a sentiment that, yes, was fairly uh, prevalent um, in, in certain sectors. And I think that 
its prevalence had to do with, uh, let's say that many, many governments did not necessarily have to recognize what we see as today, the very, very serious undertaking, not only of uh, survivors of sexual violence, but their protection, their uh, psychosocial services, uh, training troops on the prevention of all types of war crimes or crimes against humanity, including crimes of uh, sexual violence. I mean, it to compare what would be almost a, a norm or approaching a norm of today to 1994 was more like, yes, a bit of a shrug, well, what do you expect? It's war. But at the same time, uh, Toby, I have to uh, state that that wasn't always uh, the case. Uh, I've often said, and it, it's still quite astounding, that when you go back to World War II, even though we have these images that there was no uh, prosecution of sexual violence in Nuremberg, when you look over the judgment, there's not one mention of the word rape, but when you read the testimony, the evidence, the facts that the judges had before them, and then when you look at the legal basis upon which they decided in Nuremberg, it's obvious that evidence of sexual violence was on the record in Nuremberg. And in uh, the International Military Tribunal for the Far East, uh, which is often called the Tokyo Tribunal, um, I tell people, you know, read Chapter 8. If you think that sexual violence wasn't part of the armed conflict in the Far East, then if it wasn't a war crime, all you have to do is read Chapter 8 of the Tokyo Judgment. And the relentless sexual violence that they recount against, mainly against uh, females, but also against males, and the types of sexual um, torture and vivisections is just relentless. So to a certain extent, those two tribunals, and then the recent release of the War Crimes Commission by the United Nations of all the subsequent trials that occurred after the two big military tribunals, which is also replete with evidence of sexual violence, we did go into a type of mental hibernation between those two, two tribunals, between the 40s and then coming back with the Yugoslav, the Rwanda tribunal. And I think trying to explain how the military lawyers, how the other practitioners, how the academics, how the governments, how um, the intergovernmental bodies went into such a hibernation on the issue of sexual violence and nexus to armed conflict, I think that's the question that someone really needs to try and explain. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a startling omission from, from what is a, um, a hugely important um, judgment, which has shaped many, many aspects of international law as we know now. I mean, one of the things that certainly that I've experienced in Bosnia um, and more recently dealing with sexual violence in particular in the context of the Syrian conflict is um, not necessarily uh, a lack of awareness, but um, a lack of knowledge on actually how to confront it on and mm -hmm. how to deal with it. Um, one of one of the one of the concerns that I remember from the Syrian conflict, as an example, speaking to investigators in 2012, 2013, um, all male investigators saying that you know sexual violence is not a problem in the context of our conflict. And then having one of the female investigators coming forward saying, well, it's a real problem. We, they, they just don't know how to deal with it. Um, do you think that that's, that that's one aspect of it? Well, you know what? I, I do think that played into it. And I don't want to generalize too much. But I, I will say that, you know, each conflict has a, a type of narrative. And when the Yugoslav conflict was coming forward and people were being seconded to come to Yugoslav tribunal, I think governments in many ways felt like, oh, we're sending you our best uh, attorneys, you know, that might have been seconded from the highest level of their attorney general's office or their prosecutorial services and their investigative services. And many of those persons who came over were male. And to be at the top rung of prosecutorial services or investigative services in those days and up until today meant that you did what? You did... Uh, uh, you know, serial murders, you did white collar crime, or you did, those were the heights that one could gravitate to. So when they sent you your best, they weren't sending you necessarily people who were dealing with sexual violence. As a matter of fact, those were the people who either chose to go into sexual violence or were kind of sidelined into the family court section, you know, or into the special 
uh, investigation sections. Whereas today that's changed. I mean, now there are TV shows that are only devoted to, you know, special investigation cases, meaning sexual violence. But that's not what it meant to be your, um, how can I say, the, the, the type of investigator or prosecutor who from the U.S. context could put their cowboy boots up on the, on the desk after a day in court. I mean, those were many people I practiced uh, criminal law with in Philadelphia. But we found out in international uh, criminal investigations and prosecutions, you know, we, we needed a different type of prosecutor and investigator who could learn and could gather different type of experiences because we were investigating wars, armed conflicts, um, genocides, uh, crimes against humanity. So, yes, I think I've run into some of... Um, the people you might refer to in Syria. But I have to say, um, on the other hand, too, is that the male investigators, when they were confronting, and I think, uh, well, more so in Syria in terms of the commission of inquiry reports, but when they were confronting the male sexual violence that occurred in detention centers, I think they didn't expect it, and I think that they didn't necessarily have the skills in Yugoslavia, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, there was quite a bit of male sexual violence in the detention centers. And to um, the Yugoslav tribunal's credit, it has upwards of between 13 to 20 cases just on male sexual violence in detention centers. Very few people uh, talk about it. It's not highlighted. Uh, but eventually, we know that it's the investigative teams and the prosecutors that that really came forward and got to it. So that the point now, Karadzic, you know, part of his, um, uh, how can I say, his conviction incorporates male and female sexual violence. And I've understood from the times I've been in Bosnia the, during the past five years, still training prosecutors, investigators, that there are some males who are coming forward now, only now, 20 years later, so I think that uh, the male investigators and the female investigators have had to learn from experience, and it was in a positive direction. I think that's right, and I think one of the one of the points that you you, you mentioned at the beginning of that part was the, the the quality of prosecutors and investigators in the early days was not necessarily what it is now. I think, I mean, one of the comments I've always made, the fact that somebody comes from another country doesn't make them an international lawyer. Right. It just makes <laughs> Good observation. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that, that we have had to, had to deal with um, throughout all of these um, tribunals, judges, prosecutors, and, and defense attorneys alike. It's, it, it is a, a serious problem. And I, I think you're, you're quite right when, when, when you say that a lot more people are coming forward now um, than previously, 20 years later, particularly in the context of the Bosnian conflict I mean, mm -hmm. kind of that I'm still very close to. But I think a lot of that is because of the, the way that it has been dealt with at the international level. And so I think that has had very much a knock-on effect. I mean, from your experience, did, did, you, did, you, did you see that what the International Tribunal was doing was having an effect in the region, whether it's Yugoslavia or Rwanda? Well, I can certainly say this, that there was a difference between Yugoslavia and Rwanda. And in Rwanda, I would say that in the very um, early days, right after the genocide, that there were already civil society movements and the government itself who wanted to try persons who had been involved in the genocide. And that it was um, to, the, to the credit of women in Rwanda back in 95, 96, 97, even prior to the Akiesu case, uh, that really held demonstrations to make sure that sexual violence would be included within the Rwandan National Penal Code and that it would be seen as a category, I think, two crime, a serious, a serious crime. And this had to do with um, the experience of many of the survivors and, and many of the survivors, remember, almost the majority of survivors were, were women from the genocide because of the, the gendered manner in which the genocide occurred, uh, killing off uh, politicians and intellectuals first and then going after 
uh, males and then, in quotes, finally going after females. So I saw within the Rwandan context that they were going to incorporate notions of judiciability fairly early on. I think in the Yugoslav context, that occurred maybe in the early 2000s. That became more of the viable options. It became part of the prerequisites for joining the European Union. But then you started seeing uh, Croatia, um, uh, the different entities setting up courts where they were going to try war crime cases within their own national systems. There were special courts set up, and, and only now, it's uh, the past five or six years, it's at the, at the uh, cantonal level. And I remember that the Yugoslav tribunal went through this exercise of what was called 11, 11 bis, was the rule of procedure, where cases were to be turned over now to the different entities, you know, in Bosnia or Croatia, et cetera. And I had a couple of the cases I was working on was uh, the phrase we would use, oh, your case was 11 bist. That means it was sent down to um, Bosnia. But all of those were very positive uh, results in the sense that adjudication could happen on in two different jurisdictions at the same time, Yugoslavia and nationally. But now we're, we see, I think, in Bosnia, probably the country um, along with Rwanda, who's done the, the most national prosecutions of war crimes of almost any country, you know, within the past 50 years. And they've had some, um, I think, some spectacular uh, wins and some disappointments. And they really had to understand how to, how to work out, you know, the difficulties and the kinks in and, and a system. But they go forward. And I think that is extremely gratifying to tell you the truth. Absolutely. And um, I mean, I can say from personal experience, having having been involved with the Bosnian prosecutor's office on the 11 bis process, um, it was not an easy process to, to, to navigate through. But as you say, there have been some incredibly encouraging uh, results and some disappointments as, as one would expect. Um, Going back to to uh, or moving to to Rwanda for a moment, and you'd mentioned the the Akayesu case, which was obviously one one of the most significant cases. And going back to what you were saying about rape being used as a weapon of war in the context of the genocide, how difficult was it to to frame the argument? as rape being used in a, in a genocide charge in the context of Rwanda? Because I know that there were a lot of discussions that went on in those days as to whether, whether you could actually charge it. Um, and I'm just interested to, to, to hear what kind of challenges you and the team faced when you were doing that. Well, I think that there were, um, there were challenges on several levels. I mean, one of the challenges, as you've alluded to, is just the legal construction of the argument. The other challenge, of course, was you. there's no argument to put forward if you don't have the evidence. And so one of the difficulties within what was the Akiesu case is that it went forward first without charges of sexual violence. And it is while witness uh, H was on the stand, as a matter of fact, that evidence came out in the courtroom. And the judges questioned uh, witness H and I think uh, witness J was also there. And then the prosecutor asked for a recess. You can imagine how difficult that is to ask for a recess while you're in, while you're prosecuting your case, you know, in your case. Um, and thank goodness that the judges allowed us to have the recess. And during that time period, we went on to um, investigate because now it appeared that there was sexual violence evidence that could be linked to that accused, Mr. Akiesu. Uh, prior to that, uh, there was no doubt. I mean, Human Rights Watch um, had done an excellent job in terms of uh, re revealing not necessarily the extent, but really the plethora, the, uh, the widespread acts of sexual violence that occurred during the genocide. I mean, widespread in terms of, of numbers and, and, and locations. Um, but all of that, as you know, has to be linked to the accused who is on the stand. Um, you can have a lot of sexual violence, but if you don't have the person who's responsible for it, 
that doesn't necessarily become part of the judicial process. We're here thanks to, I would say, the testimony of witness H and J. And I would say that if they had probably been interviewed in a different manner over several weeks and days and whatever, that the evidence might have come out uh, prior to the prosecution putting on its case. Uh, but it's unknown because it seems like the witnesses, too, decided to say what they wanted to say, maybe when they wanted to say it. But the result became, in terms of an investigation, that we were allowed to go back out and speak with witnesses again. And because there had been several civil society groups that the women had organized themselves, they were at a state and a stage when they were ready to talk and ready to come forward with what was very uh, credible evidence. It was probative. It was reliable. And to be very honest with you, it was quite, quite moving. Um, it, it had that, that factor that comes together that not only is it hard to dispute, there's no reason to dispute it. But of course, it goes through a, a trial process. So I think that was some of the evidentiary base, the investigatory basis of having now a group of witnesses who could come forward. In terms of the legal basis of why would we say that sexual violence, and in particular rape, was part of an act of genocide, uh, it took quite a bit of, I would say, legal crafting. But the legal crafting had such a, a basis in reality. We went back to World War II and to really look not only at the genocide convention, but the commentaries. I mean, what what went into this convention? And the genocide convention was very much influenced by the conduct that occurred during National Socialism in Nazi Germany. And when you read the commentary to the convention, the preparatory works, the convention itself, and you saw its factual basis, one thing popped out extremely evident, that within the Genocide Convention, they wanted to try and encapsulate criminal conduct under a phrase um, about inflicting you know, uh, bodily mental harm to members of the group. And why did they need that type of almost abstract you know, phrase? It's almost like the definition of what is torture. Well, it was because of the reproductive and the sexual assault and the other biological experiments that had been conducted on persons in concentration camps, and particularly Jewish persons, during World War II. The reason that you have an act of genocide other than the killing is that there were acts that were considered genocidal acts in the convention related to reproductive experiments related to sexual experiments, related to bodily experiments. And that phrase captured that physical and mental harm to members of the group where there had already been an intent to destroy them. And because of understanding that, we made legal submissions that the sexual violence inflicted, in particularly upon the Tutsi women, via rape, when there was already the intent to destroy them in whole or part, satisfies that provision of the Genocide Convention. And then, effectively, that sort of set the standard for how similar cases could be argued in the future. Right. And I think what was, um, uh, and I, I'm really trying not to use the word lucky because there is absolutely nothing uh, lucky about a genocide, but what might have been legally fortuitous is that that occurred in the first case in Rwanda, yeah. which meant that from then on, and it was not necessarily uh, you know, legally smooth sailing or investigatorily smooth sailing after that, but having created that precedent in the first case really assist in how the genocide was therefore framed and how it could be legally um, tendered and investigated. Until today, I think it's amazing that the jurisprudence from Rwanda and in particular the appellate jurisprudence is, is the richest, it is the stellar jurisprudence of genocide um, throughout any of the international courts or tribunals or for national courts. Maybe, maybe the um, Cambodian, extraordinary uh, criminal chambers of Cambodia come up to a slight standard of looking at 
uh, a factual pattern that's horrific, that's a genocide. But uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda really is uh, stellar in that in, in its accomplishment. From there, I I just want to jump for a moment to to um, your work at the ICC as the as the first permanent international criminal court, um, where you. You served as special advisor on gender, gender violence to, to the ICC prosecutor. Tell us a little bit about how that appointment came about and, and what it really consists of. Right. Well, that is, is very different from the Yugoslav Rwanda tribunals. I'm the third special advisor. And as you know, within the mandate of the uh, uh, Rome statute, that the prosecutor can have special advisors, and she has several. Uh, one that looks particularly at children in armed conflict, another that looks at crimes against humanity, uh, the other looking at humanitarian law, and I look at issues of gender. And I'm the third special advisor. Uh, prior to me was Catherine McKenna, was uh, Bridget uh, Ender. And what we do is we, we really serve, um, you know, at the auspices of the prosecutor and give her advice uh, when she calls for. It's a pro bono position. We're not in The Hague necessarily every day, but because uh, Brussels is situated closer to The Hague than some of the other special advisors, I've been able not only to be there more physically, but to be in contact with different investigative teams and different uh, prosecutorial teams. And some of the contributions we've been able to make is just on uh, particular issues that relate to uh, cases, whether they be Al-Hassan or looking at some of the upcoming uh, cases whose names um, I, I won't mention. But it's it's much more of an advisory position and also position when I've been able to give uh, training to investigators and prosecutors. And at times, you know, uh, prodding where maybe they don't realize we should be going in this direction. After the Bimba case, you know, which was the first, in quotes, win for sexual violence, it was overturned on appeal. And among the things I did, but with the co-author, uh, Susanna Salcoto, is write um, very publicly our opinion that we don't think that the judges looked at command responsibility, uh, preventing or punishing crimes that you knew had occurred or should have known occurred from um, a feminist lens. Because if you know that sexual violence is among the war crimes that you as a commander could be responsible for, then it would mean that you would seek to prevent and certainly punish if they had occurred. And so it's been trying to frame some of the prosecutor's uh, gender policy outcomes. Uh, one of the ones that was very important was the Intaganda case uh, that occurred while I was there. And Intaganda, you know, for the first time as a war crime, we have same side sexual violence, which is here we have child soldiers and their commanders. And there was a, a question, can a commander be responsible for sexual violence against a child soldier under the war crimes regime, not under crimes against humanity? And there had been um, quite a bit of debate and I believe the prosecutor was brave to say, yes, that that is uh, criminal conduct and criminal conduct under the paradigm of war crimes as it is set forth, enumerated within the Rome Statute. And the trial chamber agreed with that. There were many interlocutory appeals of whether it was ultra-virus, whether there was jurisdiction. And now uh, Intaganda is up for its final appeal after the trial judgment, but that's not one of the issues that's coming forward. So very pleased to see that during these past uh, five years that there have been some, some new boundaries set in terms of looking at sexual violence during armed conflict as it pertains to children. And here under two very important categories, the recognition that rape now is used cohesion and that the sexual slavery can be committed by a commander against its own uh, child soldiers. These uh, very public pronouncements somehow have seemed to have gone under the radar screen of a lot of international uh, criminal lawyers or academics. But I don't think that they will be for long, and particularly for policymakers and for governments and for the United Nations. So that's um, in a bit of a, a nutshell, the type of advising that we do as special advisors. And do, do you think, I mean, you, you focused on one particular element of establishing command responsibility 
um, for sexual violence. Has that been a consistent problem with the international tribunals? Well, I think there's been uh, quite a challenge in terms of what is called modes of liability, uh, trying to establish the legal evidence that's required and the submissions to show that this person is responsible, is liable. So as you might know, that there have been several cases such as the Katanga case or the Chu case, uh, which certainly recognized that there have been acts of sexual and gender-based violence, but that you could not tie them, you could not make this accused responsible. And in the Bimba case, uh, it would have been the first time at the International Criminal Court that a commander was liable for the sexual violence via the mode of liability of command responsibility. There has already been a successful um, li- command responsibility case at the Yugoslav Tribunal way back, uh, and that was called the Celebici case. You might be uh, familiar with it. It's uh, Technically, it's the Lalish case, but because it took place in the Celebici prison, in uh, Bosnia that it's often referred to as the Celebici case. There, a deputy commander under command responsibility was liable, as a matter of fact, for uh, the sexual violence, including female and male sexual violence. Under the Bimba case, we would have had a commander who would have been liable for the sexual violence, but the appeals chamber overruled that conviction. And The overruling of that conviction, therefore, actually put the International Criminal Court um, in a situation where it had had no direct wins on sexual violence, that the acts had occurred, yes, but had they really been tied to someone? No. But thank goodness, as of our speaking now, we have the Ongwen case that came out last week. Uh, There's the Intaganda case as I've mentioned before, and several other cases that are moving through the system now with sexual violence. But modes of liability is the challenge. Absolutely. And I think we've we've seen it in all the tribunals. We we saw it in the Charles Taylor case with the mm-hmm. being unable to 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 really understand the, those principles. But I want to move now to um to con- to a continental. Oh, but Toby, let me say this, because I think uh, just by your mentioning Charles Taylor, um, Charles Taylor was convicted of sexual violence, but via a very interesting, um, well, I say an interesting war crime, because the war crime was terrorizing the civilian population. And part of the terror that Charles Taylor aided and abetted, therefore was liable, was the uh, relentless sexual violence in addition to the mutilations. And so it's a very interesting case of someone who is geographically far away from the actual occurrence of the physical crimes, but yet being liable for the crimes via the construct of that crime called terrorization of the civilian population, which is a customary base war crime and not a war crime under the Rome statute. So just a little little side trip on that liability factor. I think it's important to highlight that because I think the commentary on the Taylor case in particular is not one that attracts much discussion on sexual violence. Right. You're absolutely right. Thank you for noticing. And that's a shame. It is. It absolutely is. But I wanted to talk to you about um, uh, another case that you were involved in um, through a completely different um, system of law, and that was the the Guatemala genocide case, mm. where, as I understand it, you were the first um, expert that gave evidence before a Spanish court, um, certainly in this in this area, if at all. And I know that Spanish courts tend not to have this practice of having expert witnesses, as, as I understand it, they call them intelligence witnesses. But tell us a little bit about what that was like. Um, in the context of the the Guatemala genocide in Spain, right. Well, that was um, that, that was quite an honor. I participated as an expert witness along with another woman from Guatemala, who was going to be their fact witness. And Spain was one of the few countries at that point in time exercising a type of universal jurisdiction, and they were um, in the process of of extraditing or the possibility of extraditing 
a general who had been involved within the Guatemala cases or a high-ranking army official. And prior to going forward with their um, motion to extradite, they wanted to make sure that if they were going to extradite for genocide, that they understood not only the connotation of genocide, but how it could be applied within the Spanish penal code as it related to sexual violence. And that is the uh, expertise that I offered. And then my um, colleague offered the factual basis, meaning the women, and particularly the uh, women and girls who had been affected by the sexual violence in Guatemala. So we put together, once again, facts and law in front of the Spanish uh, judge. And based upon that, they were satisfied that they could then uh, move forward for the extradition. And I mean, was it was it a a very different experience for you coming from a common law background? Um, yes, how it was dealt with in a continental system. Absolutely, to say the least. Um, I I do say that at the Rwandan Yugoslav Tribunal and now at the International Criminal Court, um, having come from a purely common law background, by the time you've gone through the different international uh, jurisdictions, you, you learn how to put down your common law you know, shoulders a bit and understand that our civil law colleagues uh, do not seem to be as anxious about talking to a judge. You know, I think I would have crossed the street before running into a judge in Philadelphia just so there would be no um, uh, semblance of collusion. And I remember one day standing up, I was in court in Yugoslavia, and I stood up right after our recess break and, and said to the judges, almost confessingly, well, you know, I said hello to the witness in the hallway during lunchtime, and I'm sorry. So we have these very, um, you know, strictures in our common law head that we don't talk to witnesses, we don't talk to judges, um, we don't want any hint of collusion. So within the civil law case, for the judge to actually invite you into chambers and to sit down and prepare your uh, testimony for the following day, basically saying, I'll be asking certain questions, it'll take this time. And then to see them the following day, uh, from a common law perspective, this is just un it's not heard of. But when it came down to the essence, the testimony was the same. Uh, the testimony was submitted in a written form and then presented in an oral form. And there was never any uh, discussion or debate about what to put in the testimony, what to exclude from the testimony. All of that really stayed within the, the fine structures of presenting um, testimony as an expert witness. But uh, our different legal cultures are something that's part of the amusement, I think, that we've learned at the different international uh, structures. I think that's right. And I, um, I can also... Uh share similar experiences of, of Spain, Germany, and France. Um, but I think one of the, one of the uh, striking differences for me was the system in Bosnia, which uh, unfortunately we as the international community changed from a system based on Roman law to, to a common law adversarial system which Bosnian prosecutors and judges had never experienced before. But for me, it was very much that Everything was about the investigation up to the confirmation of the indictment. But once you confirmed the indictment, the job of the parties was pretty much done. And there was, there was, right. there was no adversarial flair that you see in a common law system. And certainly from, from my perspective, you know, uh, cases are won and lost by the strength of the advocates in, mm -hmm. in the courtroom, testing the evidence. But that's not something that you see in a continental system. It is very, very different. I, I remember that we were doing, uh, sometimes we would do legal training uh, sessions, and that the sessions on cross-examination, and, and you know coming from a common law system, I mean, you're directing your cross-examinations are, are so skill-based, and everyone wants their own way of asking that question and asking the question that can only elicit the one answer that you want from the witness. And our civil law colleagues were saying, well, all, all we need is for the witness to just state what was in a statement, because that was the truth, wasn't it? You don't have to find a, a, a way that enhances, you know, your flair presenting the question. Just get, elicit the evidence you've already adduced in the statement. Uh, but what I will say is that I think that what the common law 
uh, offered was this type of uh, a dogged system of legal principles whereby we wanted the judges to see how well that cases were prepared. And what the civil law system really offered that we could understand so much better in hindsight is that a lot of, a lot of cases in some ways are paper cases, are document cases that you want your judge to be more active. Whereas in the common law, the judge, you know, could rule on a motion, uh, but really you did not want that judge to be involved until they were actually judging the case, you know, behind closed doors. Whereas the common law system, you understood that the judge was a type of, not a party, not a partner, but a more active participant. And I could see that the witnesses and the victims looked to that activity of the judges too as a moderating factor. I think that's right. And I think in 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 terms of the type of cases that we deal with, um, I'm, I'm torn between uh, which is a better system. Um, I think that there are um, there are certain aspects of it in both systems uh, that lend to a just result. Um, so it is, you know, it's a debatable point. Yeah, but I think that's when you start seeing this, the field of, um, of international lawyers being created. And I, I ask myself, and I hope that as we have more prosecutions in national jurisdiction, you know, what part of that international approach can now uh, feed in a positive way to the national jurisdictions. But then at the same time, it's important that the investigation, prosecution of international crimes in national jurisdictions remains national enough so that they really can feel the particip participation and ownership of the, the court process and the result. Rather than the we know best kind Absolutely. of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that one of the one of the major failings of the um, and I'll say the international community writ large, but one of the the greatest failings is not putting sufficient resources, time, and effort into developing and strengthening the, the national prosecutions. Well, you know, I think that it's not too late. I mean, um, would it have been done earlier? But I'm enlightened or uh, heartened when I start to see in Colombia, that there are more resources going to that process of uh, national, it's, it's a combination of courts and it's a combination of, of um, restitution and a combination of transitional justice, a very complex system. Again, not a perfect system, there never are. Uh, the trial in Guatemala uh, against um, the general, you know, unfortunately he's passed away and then Supreme Court overturned it. But uh, understanding that the, the national presentation of international legal matters before that national court has its own richness. And it's a richness that I think has to be shared among the jurisdictions and with the international jurisdiction. I think one of the biggest things that we're lacking, Alan, I, I would love to get my hand on all of those cases in Argentina which probably has some of the, you know, widest jurisprudence on crimes against humanity because of the, uh, the dirty war years. And that must have been many things that different jurisdictions and the international jurisdiction could learn from the presentations of those cases. Well, there we have something for, for us at Guernica to do. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Now, I want to jump on to um, a topic which has been dominating um, social media over the last few days. Um, and that's the the next ICC prosecutor. As we know, um, Fatih Bensouda is stepping down. We were supposed to have a new prosecutor chosen on Friday, then uh, yesterday. Uh, now it's going to the end of this week. Now, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm less interested in, in who it should be and more interested in what that person should be doing particularly in, in the area of um, sexual-based violence and, and gender crime and conflict? Well, that's a very good question. And thank you for not asking me the, the former question, okay, of who should it, who should it be? I, I, think it's an, I think it's much more of an institutional question at this point in time. And in, in the institution I'm speaking of, it's not just the court, but the office of the prosecutor with, within the court. It, it is certainly evident today 
that the investigation and prosecution of this whole area of uh, sexual and gender-based violence has 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 grown, has matured. Um, we are, believe it or not, a quarter of a century into a much more enlightened and deepening conversation. Uh, I think we have, thank goodness, moved beyond just quickly looking at the indictment to say, well, look, does it have a rape charge in it? Uh, or just counting the rape charges. We're now looking to see, well, how does the sexual violence and how does the gender-based violence, which could mean the way in which uh, gender influence how the deportation or the imprisonment or the killings occurred, looking at the gender-based violence included with the sexual-based violence and seeing not only how did that inform the armed conflict, the crime against humanity or genocide, how did it drive it? How did it make it recede? How did it make it tick up again? Uh, where and when does the gender-based violence enter? I mean, it's the, the investigation is much more complex. Uh, we're also trying to get into the perpetrator's head to find out to a certain extent what was a perpetrator's gender ideology, and therefore it might explain how some of the gender and sexual crimes manifested themselves. If the perpetrator set up detention centers, how do we look and know what we look for at detention centers, at crossroads? Uh, if the perpetrator was trying to change uh, a religious ideology, then what types of gender and sexual constraints do they place on the people under occupation? So it's the whole contextualization, the intersectionalization, the going beyond just counting um, the charges, but understanding really the, the motivation behind the acts and therefore the intent to commit the acts. And as we've already touched on, understanding how modes of liability have to be investigated and have to be submitted with just as much fervor in terms of the gender and sexual based violence as with any other crime. And particularly, when you want to go against the most responsible, which is often a person who is physically not present or a person who militarily or politically seems to be um, quite removed. So I think we're in, we're in that stage and phase. In addition to that, I would say that now we're looking at the survivor slash victim also in a much more um, complex manner so that we know that we can have Unfortunately, children as well as elderly people, males, females, we need to start looking more at, uh, particularly in Syria, questions of LGBTI community that was attacked. Um, if not sexually, they were exterminated for the sexuality. And the fact that we have uh, victims as participants and as a party, and that we look at issues of protection prior to cases and then after cases, and what is the gender impact, um, actually just makes me feel that, my goodness, yes, we're maturing. We are maturing along with uh, the International Criminal Court. And we're, you know, we're no longer a toddler. We're 20 years in. Uh, we're young adults. But uh, we should be young adults that have vision, but already that can function quite well. Absolutely. And I intentionally didn't ask you who um, you think should be, should or will be the next one, because by the time we uh, um, we broadcast this podcast. Um, that person will have been selected. And we'll I, say congratulations to them. And I, and I would hate for for either of us to actually um, pick the wrong one. So um, <laughs> so for that reason, I won't say it. I think any one of the three who are currently being touted as potential will bring something very different to the office. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think uh, whoever is is picked, I think we're looking in quite good shape. Wonderful, but but. Obviously, um, I think it is much less about the individual, much more about the institution um, that, that needs to, to define some of these policies and, and actually define what it wants to achieve, which um, I think some may, may think has been lacking um, as an institution. Obviously, focusing on this particular area is going to be of critical importance. But what I wanted to ask you, um, I have a couple of questions. Um, I could ask you these questions all day, but I'm going to limit myself to just a couple more questions. Um, the first one is, what would you say is next 
in implementing policies for gender-based violence more on a national level? Well, thank you, because I think on a national level, it's absolutely crucial. Uh, What I've seen when I do consultancies in different countries is that national levels have at the, on the one hand, very uneven gender approaches or approaches to uh, gender-based or sexual-based violence uh, compared to, of course, you know, an international court that's set up with its own mandate. On the other hand, and for example, I'll say Colombia, Colombia already within its national penal code for war crimes already accepted same-side sexual violence. So the the great win of Intaganda is already part of uh, Colombian national penal code. On the other hand, we can turn to countries uh, such as uh, Iraq and Syria and question whether they've incorporated in their national penal code uh, crimes such as slave the slave trade, something I've been very uh, interested in the past uh, couple of years. Uh, the slave trade isn't part of the war crimes um, under Article 8 of the Rome Statute, and there's no uh, crime against humanity called slave trading, but yet we see slave trading and we see it trying to be referred to as trafficking, which is a transnational crime and not an international crime. So at the national level, sometimes we have an absence of international crimes, uh, even if they've enacted the Rome Statute. Um, as I've said, that the Rome Statute doesn't have terrorism in the civilian population. Sometimes we see that the national jurisdiction really has apropos international crimes that are not being used uh, as they could be for the international criminal conduct that could be occurring for the, on their jurisdiction. So I think that the national um, jurisdictions right now are at this moment of, of, of looking at their national codes and then looking at what types of institutions. I think if I could have um, a dream or a wish is that when people go to uh, law school and they study criminal law in their home countries, that part at least of that course in uh, national criminal law or penal penal law is to study the international crimes that your national jurisdiction has jurisdiction over. I remember saying this to my law professor uh University of Pennsylvania's um, or, or the dean about 20 years ago, and he really looks like that's a strange notion. Well, it's not when you think that, um, you know, Liberia is now trying national penal code crimes using international criminal law bases. Argentina has done it. Norway has done it. Guatemala has done it. Colombia is doing it. Uh, the United States has done it with uh, Chucky e. Taylor. Uh, as, you know, penalists, as criminal lawyers, even if we never leave our own national jurisdiction, we should at least have a notion of the international crimes that can be tried within that jurisdiction. And I would hope that we can move toward that type of uh, future too. One, one of the areas that um, Celia Guernica we've, we've looked at is the issue of misinformation and propaganda and whether that can ever stray into aiding and abetting a war crime. Now, do you think that this is something that we need to start looking at on, on the national and international level? Uh, well, one word answer is yes. When you go back to the media case in Rwanda, um, and remember the media case is the case with the radio station, Bill Collins, and the, the newspaper, um, uh, Kabunga, that just relentlessly, uh, put forward, uh, what was propaganda that led to acts of genocide. And so therefore there was a conviction for the first time under the genocide conviction of direct and public incitement to, um, commit genocide. But when we look in other situations, whether it be Myanmar, or whether it be, I would even say in the United States, with this uh, relentless talking about you know, elections being stolen, or relentless talking about the Rohingya and you know their subhumanness, it is very difficult to say that media, social media, propaganda does not influence, and does not influence to the extent that it could be instigation. Uh, it could be uh, part of what is aiding and abetting. It might rise to the level of what some people take as as an order, if you can understand whether there's subordination involved. So, uh, you know, words can 
be the equivalent of criminal conduct, in particular in situations of, of modes of liability. But we do know that that is um, <laughs> that's the aim of propaganda. Uh, what's very interesting. In Belgium, there's a museum in the northern part of Belgium that looks at the propaganda uh, that was placed in Belgium during World War I, during the occupation. And because you have about 100 years of stepping back, it's so clear to see that it was propaganda. And you ask, well, who could have ever fallen for this? Who would have believed that? This is just a caricature. That's not. But we have our own uh, current contemporary examples of that that are propaganda with the aim of making you have a certain thought or possibly do a certain act. So yes, I think that um, what you're proposing in terms of aiding and abetting, um, depending on the actual facts, I think it could be possible. The final question before I let you go is the one question that we ask um, every guest on the podcast, and it's sort of a two-part question. What does accountability mean to you, and what should we be doing better? Well, what accountability means to me, and I think it's it's slightly migrated uh, over time, migrated from being um, only individualistic, because when... When I'm in Philadelphia and, you know, as a public defender and you're in a court case, um, justice is, you know, the verdict. That's it. That's fine. But now we understand, you know, under international criminal law, whether it's being practiced uh, in a national court or at an international judicial mechanism, uh, international criminal law, by its very basis, is a collective, a crime that has a collective impact. It, it's impacted the civilian population. It's impacted one of the protected groups under war crimes. It's impacted one of the targeted groups of genocide. And even though we're very concentrated on the individual criminal responsibility of the accused, and particularly in terms of due process uh, rights, and even though we are very uh, centered on the survivor slash uh, victim or victims, there is somewhere a pronouncement that if we are talking about this international crime, we're talking about a harm that has been collective to the international community or to the civilians or to the protected group. And the individual survivors are representatives who have gone through the actual physical and mental pain, but who signify that the international community has been harmed. So I look at, at, at justice much more as the harms via the survivors or unfortunately the victims to the international community via civilians or whatever groups and taking place both locally, nationally, and internationally. And it's like the fabric has been torn and it is up to the international community and the national communities to repair those fabrics so that none of the individual victims are ever harmed again, and therefore we are not harmed again either. So I've, I've migrated from a notion of individuality to the collectivity that represents each of us collectively and individually. Wonderful. Patty, thank you for spending so much time. Thank you for giving wonderfully rich answers to these questions. And uh, thank you for being part of Guernica. We're very, very privileged to have you. Um, Guernica, I'm very proud of you. Very much so. Toby, this has been a wonderful conversation. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to discuss these, these issues with you. Thank you. The Guernica Accountability Podcast is about accountability in different parts of the world and what it means to each of us. This episode of the podcast has been truly enlightening. It has been an honor to be taken on a journey through a career that is truly unparalleled. If you enjoy these podcasts, as we hope you do, please do follow the series on our website and feel free to post on social media 
with any comments you have. You can access all of these at our website, www.guernica37.com, where you'll find more details about what we do and find all of the podcasts in our series. You can find us on Twitter at GuernicaLaw37. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We hope to bring you interesting accounts from all around the world. In the next episode, we will be bringing you another topical subject. Thank you for listening. This is the Guernica Accountability Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.